Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. And they are here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. Have you had a leaky roof? We did, and it was a nightmare. But through Angie, we found an amazing roofer who specialized in flat roofs, and he fixed it right and quickly. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com, that's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The app and website are both free to use. That's Angie.com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Tom Hartman Program. While the country is still in flames, the uh, words of the day seem to be looting and rioting. I want to take these uh, one at a time. I'm going to start with rioting. I am not seeing homes being destroyed. I'm not seeing people being targeted. Yesterday was the anniversary of the 1921 actual riot in Greenwood, Oklahoma. The uh, Tulsa Race Massacre is what it was referred to back at the time. Greenwood was a suburb of Tulsa that had over 100,000 people living in it. It was an entirely African-American community. They referred to it as the Black Wall Street. It, it was a very, very wealthy place. Black people came from all over America to live there, to do business there. The area Greenwood had, uh, in addition to 100,000 people, had luxury shops, 21 restaurants, 30 grocery stores, a hospital, a savings and loan, a post office, three hotels. This was all owned and operated and run by African Americans. Jewelry and clothing stores, two movie theaters, a library, pool halls, a bus and cab service, a nationally recognized school system, six private airplanes, their own airport, two black newspapers. And... On May 31st, white people actually rioted in Greenwood. And by rioted, I'm talking about killing people and burning their houses down. At the, t at the time of the riot, there were 15 well-known black African-American physicians. Dr. A.C. Jackson, who lived in Greenwood, was uh, said by the founders of the Mayo Brothers, the founders of the Mayo Clinic, as the finest surgeon in America. He walked out of his house with his hands up as the white crowd was approaching, and they shot him dead. The massacre began. It lasted for several days, across today as well, when white mobs descended on Greenwood, burning houses. Now, what I'm seeing is more like the Boston Tea Party out there, where in 1773, this country was birthed in an act of anti-corporate vandalism, anti-looting, and I'll get to that in a minute but burning houses and shooting black people. Some people were burned alive. 40 square blocks were burned to the ground. 10,000 people were left homeless. 300 black people were officially dead, but just a few months ago, or maybe earlier in the year, the local city officials, they think they've discovered a mass grave. Black bodies were being thrown in the river there uh, to be disposed of, but apparently hundreds were, were buried in mass graves. And we probably, in the next year or two, as they start unearthing these, will get some better sense of the total number of people who were murdered 
by white mobs in the riot in Greenwood on that day. White mobs looting homes of black people pulled out finely carved furniture, pianos, mink and leopard coats before setting the houses on fire. There were reports that hundreds of bodies were thrown into the Arkansas River or buried in mass graves. Now, that's a riot. And frankly, I'm not seeing riots. I'm seeing a rebellion. I'm seeing an uprising. I'm seeing people rising up and saying, no, we're sick and tired of it. And now you've got, you know, Trump going, I mean, this morning he went off, he was on a conference call with mayors all around and governors around the country. And he said, uh, you have to dominate. If you don't dominate, you're wasting your time. They're going to run over you. They're going to make you look like a bunch of jerks. You have to dominate. And he called these mayors fools. That was Trump this morning. Joe Biden yesterday met with black leaders at a local church in Delaware. Now that's leadership. And he's doing a conference call this morning with mayors and governors all over the country. But the simple fact of the matter is that looting is real. Looting is happening on a widespread basis, and looting has to stop. I mean, looting is the word of the day, right? We've got a major problem with looting in America. In 1981, when Ronald Reagan ended the New Deal era, crushed labor unions, and massively cut the top personal and corporate tax rate, he kicked off the most massive and widespread looting of America since the 1920s. Working people from all across the country have had $7 trillion of their wealth looted by the top 1% in just the past two decades, reducing many of them from middle class to the working poor. Small and medium-sized businesses ever since Reagan in 1983 stopped enforcing the Sherman Antitrust Act have seen their companies looted by giant monopolies and predatory banksters like Mitt Romney. Millions of homeowners across America have had their homes looted by thugs like Steve Mnuchin, California's foreclosure king, and Wall Street banksters like Jamie Dimon, a practice that's again exploding as people are losing their jobs. Hungry people across America have had their food supplies looted by defense contractors whose ever-increasing chunk of federal spending has come at the expense of food stamps and other agricultural supports for hungry people. Billionaires in the Trump crime family looted the U.S. Treasury, your money and mine, to the tune of $1.5 trillion in 2017. And then, just to add insult to injury in the last six months, have looted another, or another th- last three months, have looted another $2 trillion out of the money that was appropriated to help victims of COVID-19 victims. Betsy DeVos is looting our schools, our public schools, to give money to her buddies in the for-profit and religious education industries. George W. Bush looted trillions out of Medicare when he partially privatized the program in 2005 with the so-called Medicare Advantage, which is now throwing the Medicare program system into crisis. Bush and his fellow thugs also looted the post office when taking $5 billion a year from them for a decade to stop them from converting their fleet of vehicles to electric and hydrogen power and set the U.S. Postal Service up for sale to FedEx. Students across the country have lost $1.7 trillion to banksters looting them and empowered by Bush's 2005 bankruptcy reform legislation that's going to force some of them into debt until the day they die. Sick people in America have been looted to the tune of trillions of dollars a year by giant insurance companies and massive for-profit hospital systems that pay their executives millions and, in the case of United Healthcare, paid their CEO over a billion dollars. African Americans and Hispanics have been looted of trillions in reduced pay by racist employers and giant corporations, while their safety, their lives, and their peace of mind have been looted by racist police. Asylum seekers and immigrants have had their lives and children looted from them by brutal thugs like Stephen Miller and Donald Trump. Our air and water and the survival of our planet have been looted by giant fossil fuel companies and the billionaires who own them, leading to mass migrations and millions of deaths every year. Local media, cable systems, small internet service providers have been looted by giant corporate thugs to the point where news has become infotainment, Americans have become dumbed down, the average American family now pays more than twice, and in some cases more than 10 times 
as much for internet and cable TV services and cell phone services as people in every other developed country. Our food supply has been looted by giant corporations that have destroyed family farms, poisoned rural communities with their so-called factory farms, oceans of, of uh, pig and cow waste, and, and provoked an epidemic of obesity, diabetes, and heart disease by looting a healthy, once healthy food supply and replacing it with crap food. I'm telling you, it's time for the looting to stop in America. Let's call things what they are. So over at TomHartman.com, we just put up a new video that talks about Malcolm X saying, if you're not careful, the newspapers will have you hating the people who are oppressed and loving the people who are the oppressors. He said that 55 years ago in 1965. And, you know, what that actually means, how that warning from Malcolm X was apparently taken to heart by the Republican Party in 1981 through the Reagan presidency. And we actually saw this shift in America to the point where you know, that led to everything. I stop and frisk and the demonization of homeless people and the demonization of poor people and, and black people and Muslim people and all of this stuff came out of this very specific kind of Lee Atwater strategy in the 1980s. So you can find it over at TomHartman.com and check it out. A group of armed men Actually, numerous groups of armed white men have stormed numerous state capitals with guns and, and swastikas and obscenities and threats and putting their face right up in the face of police officers. And on the other side of this, what are we seeing? We're seeing a black man in Minnesota being murdered by a police officer on video. George Floyd. And it's just, it's like the contrast between these two things is just mind boggling. Or Amy Cooper, right? Ironically, the black guy who was the bird watcher, who was simply asking her to put her dog on back on his leash, because, you know, the dogs are not supposed to be running without a leash in this park. And she says, you know, I'm going to call the police and tell them a black man is threatening me. And he's like, okay, I'm videotaping you. And she proceeds to do it. It's like white people know the kind of power that they have to use police to potentially kill black people. And now she's, you know, this, this Amy Cooper woman, she's, you know, on social media going, oh, I, you know, my life is ruined. I lost my job. I had to give the dog back. She should be in jail. It should be against the law to call the police without good reason on a black person, on any person, frankly, but specifically, we know what we're talking about here. So you've got a group of armed white men can show up at any state capital and threaten any governor, including Gretchen Whitmer, a woman, you know, hanging her in effigy. She's the second one, by the way. They did this with Andy Bashir as well. This is just wrong, right? This, this is just wrong. I, you know, to go beyond that, I mean, and Amy Cooper knew what she was doing, and Christian Cooper, the black man, the bird watcher guy, a decent man, a good man, although that shouldn't matter, right? Having the police called on him by a white woman, I mean, th this is just, this is just crazy. The other thing that I wanted to point out, and, you know, we can discuss here when we get to, to our phone calls, is Donald Trump being fact-checked by Twitter. Donald Trump is so ignorant, and I mean this seriously, he is so ignorant that he believes that the First Amendment protects his right to say things on Twitter. Now, what I learned in the third or fourth grade when I took my first civics class in elementary school was that the Constitution and the Bill of Rights limit the power of government not Twitter. I mean, back then there was no Twitter, but you get my point. 
that the Constitution and the Bill of Rights are our protection against government. Now, who is the head of our government right now? Donald Trump. And the courts have ruled that any proclamation that a president makes is an official proclamation. So Donald Trump, is he's got it completely wrong. He says, oh, Twitter can't censor me. Twitter can't put little comments saying that I'm lying on my tweets, even when I'm lying through my tweets. Yes, they can. Twitter can do whatever they damn well please. Facebook is still letting his lies stand. In fact, Facebook is promoting his lies. Has been all along. Facebook was promoting his lies in 2016. It's one of the reasons he's sitting in the White House. And Twitter has been promoting his lies up until now. And frankly, I saw this morning numerous lies by Donald Trump that did not have Twitter disclaimers on them. So you think Jack Dorsey's gonna back down? Trump is going to open a commission. Republicans feel the social media platforms totally silence conservative voices. Right. There are more white supremacist groups on Facebook now than ever before. It has become white supremacist hate group central, Facebook has. Robbie in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Robbie, what's up? Hey, Tom. I love when you talk conspiracies. It's so great. The, uh... <laughs> The cops being the uh, agent. These are not conspiracies, Robbie. I saw this stuff with my own eyes. This stuff happens. It's happening in plain sight. Tom, it's the evidence for agent provocateurs is very obvious. It's still happening basically in St. Louis. If you look it up, there's a Washington Post article. Four cops are being indicted for having beaten an undercover protester when the Black Lives Matter was going off. So these four cops literally beat up almost to death an undercover cop who was rioting in St. Louis. It's pretty remarkable. Right. I saw it here in Portland. There's video evidence I'd be happy to send to you later. But I tried getting a person in OPB, which is Oregon Public Broadcasting out here. I tried getting them to cover the story about how Portland police were dressing up as black block. At first, she was very skeptical. But then when I showed her the evidence, her jaw dropped. And she, was, she told me that one of her colleagues had found out that a police dressed up as a black block protester down in Tigard at another protest. This is in, I don't know, a few years ago. Anyway, mm-hmm. she was like, oh, I'm going to look into it. Never covered it. This never gets covered. I, so this agent provocateur thing is a very well-known and documented thing that we need to accept. That's a conspiracy. That's the definition of a conspiracy is when two or more people dress up to deceive, you know, play other people. That's what a conspiracy is. So we're, we're finding the conspiracy theorem here. But yeah. Amy Klobuchar was actually didn't prosecute that person. You know, yeah. and here's the thing about thinking Joe Biden uh, is somehow, you know, you constantly say Joe Biden's good because of Barack Obama, but Barack Obama <laughs> worked harder at getting. I'm not saying he's not good elected. because of Barack Obama. I'm saying that, you know, anybody who says that that's all he has going for him, really. But let me yeah, say this. I, I uh, agree. Bernie, he, Barack Obama, Barack <laughs> Black Lives Matter started when Obama was there. Let me read you a tweet that Bernie said today. He said every unarmed killing of a black person needs to be investigated by the federal investigation. Obama said mm-hmm. the state needs to do it. What he said when it was going on is the police were acting stupidly. So I don't think that the Democrats are going to cut it out. But uh, I'm happy that you talked about these conspiracies because they are very real. And cops dress up as yeah. black bloc anarchists. I was in Seattle at May Day one time and Sure enough, you know, Seattle anarchists particularly hate Nike. Mm -hmm. This protester was wearing Nikes and threw a cinder block through a driving car. And the other protesters ran up immediately to help this lady. But, you know, this is is what they do. I don't think any election is going to help. You know, I feel that uh, Bernie Sanders not voting for, you know, he was the one person that didn't vote for the Internet search history. Right now they can legally they don't need a warrant to search our Internet history. Bernie Sanders was the one person he didn't vote. We missed it. He that, missed it because uh, he was not—he was not willing to get on an airplane and fly to Washington D.C. during the middle of COVID-19. And okay, I'm not going to fall. Okay, check this out, Tom. Yeah, I got it, Robbie. No one's good enough for you. I got it. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery. Starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. 
visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America really is a deep history. It's brilliant. This is from the introduction. As 1956 drew to a close, Colgate Whitehead Darden Jr., the president of the University of Virginia, feared for the future of his beloved state. The previous year, the U.S. Supreme Court had issued its second Brown versus Board of Education ruling, calling for the dismantling of segregation in public schools with, quote, all deliberate speed. In Virginia, outraged state officials responded with legislation to force the closure of any school that planned to comply. Some extremists called for ending public education entirely. Darden, who earlier in his career had been the governor, could barely stand to contemplate the damage such a rash move would inflict. Even the name of this plan, Massive Resistance, made his gentlemanly Virginia sound like Mississippi. On his desk was a proposal written by a man who had recently been appointed chair of the economics department at the University of Virginia. 37-year-old James McGill Buchanan likes to call himself a Tennessee country boy, but Darden knew better. No less a figure than Milton Friedman had extolled Buchanan's potential. As Darden reviewed the document, he might have wondered if the newly hired economist had read his mind. For without mentioning the crisis at hand, Buchanan's proposal put in writing what Darden was thinking. Virginia needed to find a better way to deal with the incursion on states' rights represented by Brown v. Board of Education. To most Americans living in the North, Brown was a ruling to end segregated schools, nothing more, nothing less. And Virginia's response was about race. But to men like Darden and Buchanan, two well-educated sons of the South who were dedicated to its model of political economy, Brown voted a sea change on much more. At a minimum, federal courts could no longer be counted on to defer reflexively to states' rights arguments. More concerning was the likelihood that the high court would be more willing to intervene when presented with compelling evidence that a state action was in violation of the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection under the law. States' rights, in effect, were yielding in preeminence to individual rights. It was not difficult for either Darden or Buchanan to imagine how a court might now rule if presented with the evidence of the state of Virginia's archaic labor relations, its measures to suppress voting, or its efforts to buttress the power of reactionary rural whites by underrepresenting the moderate voters of the cities and suburbs of Northern Virginia. Federal meddling could rise to levels once unimaginable. James McGill Buchanan was not a member of the Virginia elite, nor is there any explicit evidence to suggest that for a white Southerner of his day, he was uniquely racist or insensitive to the concept of equal treatment. 
And yet somehow, all he saw in the Brown decision was coercion. And not just in the abstract, but the court ruling represented to him was personal. Northern liberals, the very people who looked down on Southern whites like him, he was sure, were now going to tell his people how to run their society. And to add insult to injury, he and people like him with property were now, no doubt, going to be taxed more to pay for all the improvements that were now deemed necessary and proper for the state to make. What about his rights? Where did the federal government get the authority to engineer society to its liking and then send him the bill? Who represented their interests in all this? I can fight this, he concluded. I want to fight this. Find the resources, he proposed to Darden, for me to create a new center on the campus of the University of Virginia, and I will use this center to create a new school of political economy and social philosophy. It would be an academic center, rigorously so, but one with a quiet political agenda to defeat the perverted form of liberalism that sought to destroy their way of life, a social order, as he described it, built on individual liberty, a term with its own coded meaning, but one that Darden surely understood. The Center Buchanan promised would train a line of new thinkers in how to argue against those seeking to impose an increasing role of government in economic and social life. He could win this war, and he would do it with ideas. While it's hard for most of us today to imagine how Buchanan or Darden or any other reasonable, rational human being saw the racially segregated Virginia of the 1950s as a society built on the rights of the individual, in quotes, no matter how that term was defined, it is not hard to see why the Brown decision created a sense of grave risk among those who did believe that. Buchanan fully understood the scale of the challenge he was undertaking and promised no immediate results, but he made clear that he would devote himself passionately to this cause. Some may argue that while Darden fulfilled his part, he found the money to establish the center, he never got much in return. Buchanan's team had no discernible success in decreasing the federal government's pressure on the South all the way through the 60s and 70s. But take a longer view, follow the story forward to the second decade of the 21st century, and a different picture emerges, one that is both a testament to Buchanan's intellectual powers and at the same time the utterly chilling story of the ideological origins of the single most powerful and least understood threat to democracy today, the attempt by the billionaire-backed radical right to undo democratic governance. For what becomes clear as the story moves forward decade by decade is that a quest that began as a quiet attempt to prevent the state of Virginia from having to meet national democratic standards for fair treatment and equal protection under the law would, some 60 years later, become the veritable opposite of itself, a stealth bid to reverse engineer all of America. Democracy and change. Randall in Oceanside, California. Hey, Randall, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind? How you doing today? Glad to see you're healthy and well. And I'm doing very well. I have a question for you, and then I have a comment I'd like to make about William Barr, if you'll allow me. My first question okay. is... Why isn't what the police did considered a hate crime? It probably will be. Uh, very often, uh, you know, if we had anybody other than Bill Barr in the Department of Justice, uh, it almost certainly would have, you know, there, there, would, there is an investigation going on by the DOJ of that and possibly, you know, uh, prosecuting him also under civil rights statutes. I'm just not real hopeful. I mean, the, the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division has been basically gutted by Bill Barr. What was your comment, Randall? You know, I haven't heard any comments on, like that on the TV at all. Anyway, to Bill Barr, I think it would be, behoove him to study history a little bit, and I recommend that he starts with Marie Antoinette. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Excellent. Randall, thank you very much for the call. It's good to hear from you. You know, I, I also want to point out, you know, there's people in the streets who, you know, obviously have an agenda other than mourning the death of George Floyd. There are people in the streets who have uh, an agenda other than, you know, mourning the death of Breonna Taylor or Ahmed Arbery. There are people in the streets who are, you know, on the right. Frankly, I think this is probably a majority of it, but maybe not. I don't know. Time will tell. Who are looking to stir trouble up, apparently firing into crowds. In Denver, one of these white boo guys was, uh, you know, they took all kinds of long rifles from this guy. It's pretty amazing. And then also, there were some, frankly, positive notes 
I mean, we look around the country, and in city after city after city, and this absolutely surprised me. I mean, just really shocked me. Shocked is probably not quite the right word, but where, you know, down in Miami, I believe it was, a police sergeant or commander was saying, I'm with you guys and marching with protesters. In city after city, we had police taking a knee with protesters. This is a big step. That's like walking out on the edge for a police officer, knowing that, you know, a large chunk of the uh, of their own police department is probably, you know, fulminating racists or whatever the appropriate term is. You know, there's got to be a certain amount of danger, not necessarily quite the right word, but it has to require a certain amount of something, courage or compassion. I suppose in some cases it might just be, you know, a PR attempt or an effort to ramp things down, but... You know, I, still, I, I think there's some hope here, but we have to fundamentally change how we police in this country. We'll be back. Stick around. Our one-hour free podcast recaps our show, and it's available wherever fine podcasts are found. And we have the full three-hour podcast available over at TomHartman.com if you want to really support our program. Well, people are outraged. George Floyd being murdered by the police in Minneapolis. Breonna Taylor being murdered by the police in Louisville, Kentucky. President Obama issued a formal statement, which is pretty remarkable. He said, I want to share parts of the conversations I've had with friends over the past couple days about the footage of George Floyd dying face down on the street under the knee of a police officer in Minnesota. This is from Barack Obama, President Obama. The first is an email from a middle-aged African-American businessman. Quote, Dude, I gotta tell you, the George Floyd incident in Minnesota hurt. I cried when I saw that video. It broke me down. The knee on the neck is a metaphor for how the system so cavalierly holds black folks down, ignoring the cries for help. People don't care. Truly tragic. End quote. Another friend of mine, again, I'm reading President Obama's official statement. Another friend of mine used the powerful song that went viral from 12-year-old Kedron Bryant, to describe the frustrations he was feeling. The circumstances of my friend and Kedron may be different, but their anguish is the same. It's shared by me and millions of others. It's natural to wish for life to, quote, just get back to normal, end quote, as a pandemic and economic crisis upend everything around us. But we have to remember that for millions of Americans, being treated differently on account of race is tragically, painfully, maddeningly normal whether it's while dealing with the healthcare system or interacting with the criminal justice system or jogging down the street or just watching birds in the park. This shouldn't be normal in 2020 America. It can't be normal. If we want our children to grow up in a nation that lives up to its highest ideals, we can and must be better. It falls mainly on the officials of Minnesota, President Obama wrote, to ensure that the circumstances surrounding George Floyd's death are investigated thoroughly and justice is ultimately done. But it falls on all of us, regardless of our race or station, including the majority of men and women in law enforcement who take pride in doing their tough job the right way every day, to work together to create a new normal in which the legacy of bigotry and unequal treatment no longer infects our institutions or our hearts. So that's what we hear from a real president, from Barack Obama. What do we hear from the guy who's sitting in the White House right now? Yeah, the bullets are going to start flying, man. I mean, it's just Trump's quote. This was from, you know, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. This is from Walter Headley, who was a racist Miami police chief in 1967, who led a basically a police 
terrorist campaign against people of color in Miami, largely black people in Miami. And in fact, he announced a plan that would quote, these are his words, the police chiefs, we will use shotguns, dogs, and stepped up stop and frisk policy in a war against young hoodlums. Now Trump calls them thugs, he called them hoodlums. I mean, let's not forget back in 1990, Donald Trump, who says that he's going to bring in the National Guard and bullets are going to fly. In 1990, Donald Trump, this was right after Tiananmen Square. Donald Trump told Playboy magazine, quote, the Chinese government almost blew it. Then they were vicious. They were horrible, but they put it down with strength. That shows you the power of strength. Our country right now is perceived as weak. So Donald Trump thinks that, you know, or apparently thought in 1990 that Tiananmen Square was, hey, you know, that's a, that's a strong people do. This is the guy who praises Kim Jong-un. This is the guy who, who loves Erdogan and Duterte, etc. And now the man who murdered George Floyd, or the, one of the men, the four men who murdered George Floyd, Derek Chauvin, apparently has killed other people. This guy's a serial killer cop, if these news reports are correct, and has been written up 19 times. It's mind-boggling. Anyhow, let's pick up your calls. Bill in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Hey, Bill, what's up? It's a pleasure speaking with you. One of the things that I think that has always troubled me when we talk about race and racism and uh, how do we combat it, I've always thought that the strategy should be to make it painful, economically painful. That is probably the best strategy because if people don't have the opportunity to express their racism without some sort of consequence, I think that will go a long way to diffusing those people that want to express racist tendencies. And the the other thing that I have been contemplating When something like this happens, the pundits on television, especially the white pundits, will have someone, a person of color, on their show, and they'll ask them, why is this happening and what can we do to fix it? And I've been perplexed because why is it that these pundits are asking people of color to fix a problem that they didn't create? Right. Yeah. Well, I said something like that to Kenyatta the other day. I said, you know, do you have suggestions for this? I wasn't asking him to fix it. I was asking if he had thoughts specifically because he was a former police officer. But yeah, I'm with you, Bill. This problem is a white problem. I mean, you know, the problem is falling on black people, but it is coming out of the white communities, coming out of white racism. And your point about, you know, economic pain, Amy Cooper lost her job, you know, she's figuring that out. And I think that, you know, that story getting out more widely is a good thing, but it needs to go way beyond just economics. People need to feel shame when they express that kind of stuff. And one more thing, if I may, if the question is going to be asked, I would say that you already have your answer. Nat Turner, Medgar Evers, Martin Luther King, Stokely Carmichael, John Lewis have already answered the question. The question is, have you been listening? Yeah. And if the answer is no, this is what we get. Yep. Yep. Anyway, thank you, sir. I do appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Paul in Lucerne, California. Hey, Paul, what's up? Hey, Tom. I'd like to talk about PTSD and African-Americans. Just think about this. They're having to worry about the stuff that us average white people do, this epidemic. But they also have to worry about, is this the day I'm going to be shot for driving down the street? Is this the day they're going to kick in my door and mistakenly shoot me because they think I'm somebody else? Could you imagine the stress? That news article you tweeted out perfectly shows it to you, right? That man was genuinely terrified he was going to be murdered. Did that cop and he was. put his gun away? No, he didn't. If those cops would have... No, the cop casually puts weapon. his hand in his pocket like, hey, hey, here I am killing a guy, just having a good time. It's ridiculous. And then you're totally right. Their weight, and first of all, 
his first statement was, I'm having a hard time breathing. And then later on, his statement was, I can't breathe. Watch the whole video. The very first thing that comes out of his mouth was, I'm having a hard time breathing. He's got three grown men kneeling on him. Of course he is. Yeah. And one of them, you know, we can't see if his knees were, if that cop's knees were in the small of his back or in the back of his chest, probably a little bit of both. But that certainly contributed to it as well. Paul, thank you for the call. This is the Tom Hartman Program. The country mourns. The country's in crisis. We've got a madman in the White House. What else could happen? Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman here. Did you know that the Second Amendment was written to protect the slave patrols in South Carolina and Georgia back in the day? It's in my new book, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. Check it out. Thanks so much. Harry in Lompoc, California. Hey, Harry, what's up? Hey, Mr. Hartman. Thank you very much for taking my call. I had a question, but I wanted to open up before that question by mentioning that my view is that uh, the so-called left, as during Martin Luther King Jr.'s time, uh, seemed to be brought into kind of a conscientious nonviolent movement. It seems that this was a, a little bit of a threat to the, the right movement because they kind of needed somebody to fight. I would want to bring up an individual from history named Sir Oswald Mosley of the Black Shirt English Nationalist Movement in England. 
as a uh, provocateur who actually put down something of uh, kind of a strategy for how to carry out provocation to lead to violence. My question is, are you familiar with him? Yes. (laughs) I've I've heard most of his name, but I don't know anything about it beyond that. Okay. Well, in my degree studies, I've found that it seems as though that the template that's used by the right movements around the world, and in particular being pushed by Bannon, are based verbatim from the English black shirt movement, which spread to the United States, which was Was that during by, the time of the, of the English Revolution, you know, of Cromwell and all that No, stuff? no, no. This when was in this? the early 20s and 30s, during the time oh, of the, the rise of the, okay. of the National Socialist Party in, in Germany. In the U.K., Yes. And for some reason, they knighted him when really he should have been, you know, arrested. And I mean, he tried to overthrow the government. So if anybody's interested, check out this character and you might see and began to draw some relationships between him and uh, what had taken place with uh, the black shirt movement here in in the United States and the Ku Klux Klan and what have you. So my next question would be, do you think that a bloody revolution is inevitable Or do you think that we can actually achieve a collective, if you will, I hate to use that term really, but a more long lasting uh, kind of change for the better with a nonviolent revolution? Is it possible to have a nonviolent revolution? It's not only possible, it's it's the more common way that things happen. The bloody revolutions like the French Revolution, the American Revolution get all the publicity. But keep in mind, you know, even even in 1860, when, oh, what's his name, you know, was writing about how parliamentary systems should be created, there were only four or five functioning democracies in the world. You know, now there's, I think it was around 95 or 100 of them as of a couple of years ago. The vast majority of them came about through peaceful revolution. Yes, we had a bloody revolution here, the Civil War, where we had a group of traitors in the South who wanted to protect their institution of slavery and their wealth that came out of it and took on the United States. And we've got this small minority of racist white people who want to have a race war, their word, their phrase. But I really think that they are you know, going to be consigned to the dustbins of history. I really do. I hope this is not heading for bloodshed. I certainly hope. And, that and, and, and frankly, Harry, I think that the, the number one tool that we have to prevent this from becoming bloodshed is to point out when people, when, when these white racists or these white racist cops are acting as agent provocateurs, are trying to provoke riots, they're trying to provoke or violence specifically, to out them. And, you know, we now have the means to do that. I mean, it used to be somebody would say, oh, yeah, I saw that guy was a cop. And everybody go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you always say that. Now it's like, here's 35 seconds of video on my iPhone of that guy who is a cop, right? And so it's getting a little harder to dismiss this kind of stuff. I was uh, security during the riots in the 90s in Los Angeles. And, you know, I don't mean to be targeting people. I had friends who were police officers and what have you. But they literally did go around looking for trouble. They weren't helping people who needed help. And they were just running around like armed gangs, you know, just jumping people. And that was pretty freaky because you didn't know who to trust, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, it, oh, yeah. I mean, I, this, and this has been going out, you know, in a whole variety of contexts, but almost always by the right against the left. Look at 1968 in Chicago at the Democratic National Convention. It was a police riot. You know, there's always this need to insert violence in spots where it is that we're just about ready to achieve a nonviolent resolution. Right. I agree. And in 68, I mean, that was that was the whole the whole point was how do we end the Vietnam War? And instead it became, oh, my God, you know, the, the hippies are and the anti-war protesters are rioting. And the, but it was the police who were rioting. I mean, it's just it's. How many times do we have to live through this? All of us. But you know, now it's particularly, you know, with the murder of, of George Floyd and it, it continues. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. When you've got a problem that's 400 years deep and arguably longer than that, it, it doesn't lend to instant solutions, but there are things we can do. This is the Tom Hartman program. This book in the Tom Harbin Book Club is All Politics is Local, Why Progressives Must Fight for the States by Megan Winter. And this is from the introduction. 
On February 20, 2018, six days after 17 people were shot and killed at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, Representative Keon McGee, a Democrat from Miami, stood on the floor of the Florida House of Representatives. Looking on from the gallery above were Parkland students who had traveled over 400 miles by bus to Tallahassee with the hope of persuading their state lawmakers to pass gun reforms in Florida. McGee asked the assembly to vote on a bill that would have banned assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Representative Carlos Guillermo Smith of Orlando, where a gunman had killed 49 and wounded another 53 people in the Pulse nightclub in 2016, had sponsored the bill, whose chances would expire unless the House bent its usual protocol and acted right at that moment. The shooting at Parkland demands extraordinary action, McGee told the assembly. He was trying a technical procedural maneuver, one that might have worked in an alternate reality without partisan politics. But everyone who understood what it meant that Republicans held a supermajority in the Florida Assembly knew what would come next. Richard Corcoran, the Republican Speaker of the House, interrupted McGee. A few minutes later, the House voted on a party lines, 71 to 36, not to consider the assault weapons ban. In the gallery, students began to cry. On Twitter, student leader Emma Gonzalez wrote, the anger that I feel right now is indescribable. Something unusual was happening. With their eloquence, temerity, and rage, the Parkland students had seized national attention. Major news networks and papers dispatched reporters to cover their calls for change. That week in February, even before knowing that hundreds of thousands of students nationwide would soon walk out of their schools and through the streets, the American public paid attention to what was happening in Tallahassee, Florida. And yet from another advantage, the scene in the Florida Capitol that day was not at all unusual. In state houses, it is not uncommon to watch someone sit before a panel of elected officials, hold up a placard of a dead child killed by opioids or lack of insurance or a gun, and plead for the passage of a bill that will inevitably not move out of committee because it does not fit within the political calculus of the Assembly's leadership. In those hearing rooms, ordinary people often share in breathtaking impotence. Three weeks before the Parkland students arrived in Tallahassee, for example, the Florida Senate Judiciary Committee discussed the Rule of Law Adherence Act, which would have required all local government officials, explicitly including employees of the state university system, to turn over information about immigrants to federal immigration officials. The bill was similar to those shopped around the country by the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, an organization that since the 1970s has written experimental conservative state legislation. Alex's corporate members included Geo Group, the largest provider of detention services for immigration and customs enforcement, ICE, and a major donor to Florida Republicans and Donald Trump's presidential campaign. In 2016, the federal government decided to stop contracting with private prisons because the Department of Justice investigation had found they were unsafe. But after Trump's inauguration in early 2017, Geo Group received $774 million worth of contracts to run federal prisons. On January 30th, 2018, the day that the Florida immigration bill was considered in Tallahassee, so many people showed up that the hearing room reached capacity. Muslim students and Latino farm workers and their teenage children who had traveled hours to testify against the bill were not allowed into the packed room. Expressionless, they watched the proceedings on a television mounted in a hallway as Florida Senator Aaron Bean stood at the podium and said that his bill means criminals will be kept off the streets. The bill did not advance in what counts as a victory, in part because in 2011, immigrant rights groups staged weeks-long protests in Tallahassee to oppose a bill modeled after the Arizona's 2010 law that allowed police officers to ask for immigration papers if they suspected someone was undocumented. The Florida legislature didn't pass a new aggressive anti-immigration law until 2019 when it gave the state the power to sue local law enforcement that refused to detain people according to orders from federal immigration officials. The next day, January 31st, Floridians concerned about sea level rise arrived in Tallahassee by the busload to ask their legislators to pass a raft of proactive climate change bills. Many were college students or recent graduates who had grown up along the coast and understood that the window of opportunity for stalling climate change was rapidly closing. During their lifetimes, they told me, their hometowns would be radically altered, if not sunken. By the end of the legislative session that March, none of the bills they wanted were passed. Even though just 10 years ago, it was all but mandatory for both Democrats and Republicans in Florida to at least make overtures about the need for proactive environmental laws. 
Similar scenes play out in hearing rooms across the country, usually unrecognized by the American public. Beneath the tumult of the Trump presidency, state lawmakers have largely kept their course. As Alec's own website explained in 2017, quote, state legislatures around the country have made significant progress passing bills on issues such as immigration, policing, and health care, even as Republicans in Congress and President Trump have struggled to make similar progress at the federal level, end of quote. After decades of state-based campaigns coordinated by libertarian and Republican operatives and disinvestment in the states, right-wing politicians have swept control of state houses. All politics is local. The chief of police of Aurora, Illinois, Kristen Zimmon, has posted a uh, note here. The headline, I think, kind of says it all. Resisting suffocation is not resisting arrest. So you've got a police chief who's speaking out. That's a good sign. Somebody called a few minutes ago and said, did George Floyd call out to his mother as he was dying? I said, I'm not sure. You know, I haven't seen an actual transcript. But somebody tweeted to me. Here it is. It's from Frazzled. Frazzled, thank you. This is an article from uh, theundefeated.com. I'll just read, read you a, a couple of sentences. Please, man, Floyd begs as he is ground into the pavement. His pleas mix with the ambient noises around him. They are the disjointed sounds from the clash of belief systems and competing visions of sovereignty, of ownership, of authority over black bodies compressed into the narrow frame of Floyd's last moments. Mama, Floyd, 46, calls out. Mama, I'm through, the dying man says and I recognize his words. A call to your mother is a prayer to be seen. Floyd's mother died two years ago, but he used her as a sacred invocation. Robin in Kingston, Washington. Hey, Robin, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. This is a message about all the activities going on. The umbrella of the overall message is lessons from Ferguson, uh, Missouri. The concept here is how to avoid police or anarchistic or Trumpster filtration of protests, okay? And there is a way to do this that requires discipline. So you have a thousand protesters in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Break them up into 100 groups of 10. Occupy 100, okay, street corners all around the city. Now, there aren't enough anarchists or Trumpsters or police guys to infiltrate those groups, okay? And if they try to, they stick out like a sore thumb. The reason that this is symbolic of Ferguson, just to remind people if they have forgotten, there are same questions in Ferguson about did the police do it? Did they allow the buildings to be burned? Did the whole thing get set right. up? And in Ferguson, you also had the problem of a police force that didn't live in the city and didn't draw yeah. its people from citizens of the city. Yes, but the protesters in Ferguson finally got tired of protesting, and then they started to direct political action, which means that they took mm. their same energies and they used the voting box and they used their local connections to change their government. And they successfully did so, Tom. They went from... Yeah, but, you know, know, Minneapolis, Robin, is a fairly progressive town. It's got a very progressive mayor. It's got a black police chief. Yes, there are political solutions to some pieces of this. And yes, the political process has to be used to make the kind of structural changes that are necessary. But at the core of our concept of policing in America, Robin... I agree with you that that has to, I completely agree with you. This is just why this show has been your best show. I I think it's been your best show ever because you're dealing with the big bullets here. So here, here is the concept of this call. It's an old math. If A equals B, B equals C, then A equals C. A. We have protests that police and infiltrators can infiltrate. B. Police infiltrators do and want to start to infiltrate. C. Therefore, police want big protests. It's the police that want big protests, okay? Yeah. So and and let me add a D to this, Robin, and because I think that we're close to being there, and the next 48 hours are going to tell us, frankly, everything. 
We can all see anybody who's got a Twitter account or a Facebook account or any kind of social media or for that matter can just access the Internet if you want to dig a little deeper. We can all see a white guy just casually walking down the street smashing windows, you know, dressed entirely in black with his black umbrella. And we can see one of the local people, you know, somebody from the community follows him and videotapes him. And the question in my mind, the turning point for this whole thing is going to be if that guy is identified in the media. Right now, that that entire conversation about white provocateurs, about the white people who are in front of the police department when it caught on fire. I just saw another picture of one of them, of this white guy with the umbrella all dressed in black, smashing windows. You know, basically, if that story if there's not a discussion about that in the media, then we're screwed. We're just going to repeat this over and over and over, and it's going to get worse and worse, and it's going to empower the whole Boogaloo movement, the whole, you know, these white supremacists who are trying to start a war, uh, a racialized war in the United States. And if it does get exposed and there is some serious examination, then I think we've got some hope. And then I would add to that, there are three other men who participated in murdering George Floyd. And one of those four men has been charged with murder now, third degree murder, but murder. What about the other three? That's my thinking on it. Steve in Cooperstown, New York. Hey, Steve, what's up? Hi, Todd. When police officers are hired, they are assessed with psychological tools. One is projective and one is subjective. They have what is called high internal validity. And one complements the other. Well, I know someone that uh, uh, reviews those assessments and he personally told me that uh, many of these people that are uh, taking these tests test worse than the prisoners and uh, and they can't pass them but the, there's somebody in the police force that wants them on the police force so they end up hiring them anyway and i and, and it's taxpayers money that is paying for these te- this testing service yeah well a, and a not all police departments do that in fact i'm guessing probably only your big city ones do and b That's the people correct. who can most easily fool those kinds of tests are sociopaths That's absolutely correct Thank you Steve thank you very much for the cause to your point if a police department see this is this is why i i'm i you know people say oh we just need to test them more or oh we just need to pay them better no we need to change our concept of policing We have this idea in the United States. You know, this is a debate that we have been having since the 1600s about whether people are fundamentally evil and need to be controlled by an external force or whether people are fundamentally good and need to be assisted into into society, as it were. And if you look at, for example, the way that Norway polices, and I use that example because you can watch that example by watching Michael Moore's movie, Where to Invade Next, where he goes to Norway and he looks at the police system and he looks at the prison system. And it's all oriented toward rehabilitation. All of it. And then you look at the United States and it's all oriented toward punishment. And the reason why is because we are still believing Thomas Hobbes, Leviathan, 1634, saying that without the iron fist of church or state, the essentially evil nature of man will emerge and chaos will reign. Life will be nasty, short, and brutish. Whereas the Norwegians took John Locke a a century later, you know, 1673, in the Second Treatise on Government, saying basically people are good. And people can govern themselves. And I'm saying we need to re- fundamentally change the way we're lo- viewing this Tom stuff. Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. That difference in worldview, by the way, defines essentially the difference between the conservative worldview and the liberal worldview. Molly in Davenport, Iowa. Molly, you have the last minute of the show. What's up? Hi, Tom. Thank you. The musical South Pacific had the song, You Have to Be Taught, You Have to Be Carefully Taught. And this is how millions of people learned how to be bigots. So when I was 12 years old, I heard about Rosa Parks. At 16, I read the book Black Like Me, did my high school report on that. And I changed how I was taught. So we're trying to help young people do this. And I'm also first vice chair of our Scott County Democrats here, and we're work- working to get Democrats, mm-hmm. good Democrats elected 
And there are millions of us that are disgusted by what happened to George Floyd and to others. And let you know that thank you. we listen Molly, to Molly, I got to run. Thank, thank you very much. I want to thank Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer and Vance, uh, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Hoyt, Gerilyn Halbert, Dave Fulton, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, and Jabberwocky, our staff for helping keep this program going. Thank you all, and thank you for being with us. Spread the word, tag your in, and help wake this country the hell up. You've been listening we'll to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.